and welcome to the TNW podcast. This is our brand new show in which we discuss the latest developments in the European technology ecosystem and feature interviews with some of the most interesting people in the industry. My name is Andre Degeler. I am the head of media at TNW and the host and producer of this podcast. Joining me today once again is our senior editor, Linia Algren. Hey, Linia, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Andre. Still mildly scared of the microphone, but uh, slowly getting into it. <laughs> okay, should I uh, should I look for a smaller one for next time? No, that's okay. It's just I think getting uh, accustomed to um, to speaking and being recorded. Yeah, it's a threatening thing. I mean, be thankful that you are not the one editing this, or or you would have been uh, listening to your voice like twenty times every day. Yes, no, that does not sound like my idea of fun. <laughs> I like it, though. I am very happy to be back to podcast, and I'm very happy to be back to at least doing the rough edits on the podcast, which is then polished, of course, by our great sound engineer. But uh, it's, uh, it gives me a lot of joy. Yeah, no, I'm very happy to be here and to be recording this with you. I'm just very happy also not to be doing the <laughs> editing. <laughs> All right, perfect. So uh, let's get moving with the episode. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So today's episode, we are going to discuss what happens with the generative AI hallucinations when they start to concern European politics. Then uh, we're going to talk about the big deal between OpenAI and Axel Springer. Then we talk about similarities between the industries of computer chips and tampons and of of course, there's much more that we want to discuss. You will also hear an interview with Erica Chong, uh, the Theranos whistleblower who is now working on bringing ethics and responsibility to entrepreneurship. Okay, that's a lot of stuff. Let's dive in. Story that we covered this week, which is AI chatbots elections. Linia, can you give the lowdown? <laughs> yes, I can. Uh, so this uh, episode will uh, be a little bit on the AI storyline topic again. Uh, but I feel like there are a few stories that are just too important uh, not to mention, um, especially being a media publication and the implications that they have for us. So there are two NGOs, European NGOs, AI Forensics and Algorithm Watch performed a study on Microsoft's Bing AI, which has also been known as Bing Chat, which is now rebranded as Copilot. So try to keep up with that if you can. But they found that when they prompted Bing AI, as it was called at the time in October 2023, about elections taking place in Germany, state elections taking place in Germany and in Switzerland, one out of three responses were inaccurate mm. as it related to informations, information about politicians, uh, about polling results, and uh, questions, for example, who should I vote for if I care about this particular uh, question about the environment, say. So rather than acknowledging in certain instances that uh, Bing could not provide the answer, it simply made up a response, uh, meaning that it hallucinated mm -hmm. a response to that it did not have access to. But then it actually attributed this response to actual news sources, what? which is obviously something that could erode trust in media sources over time. Furthermore, what it did is it made up scandalous behavior of certain <laughs> politicians or said that they were involved in corruptions, whereas those allegations never occurred, etc. So it's not sort of benign little misrepresentations. No, and not. I mean, the fear, obviously, with generative AI has been that there will be malicious intent that it, from 
people or organizations trying to spread misinformation, which we see now particularly in, in Bangladesh, which are coming to elections in January. We see a lot of deep fakes being spread even by government-controlled news sources for very little budget. And so this has been the concern, but providing false information from what I would say is a very human trait. <laughs> like, oh, wait, I don't know the, the answer to that. Let me just wing it, sort of, right? Um, we were joking before um, we started the recording that maybe AGI is actually hiding itself. It's already there. It's just hiding behind this benign chatbot. I, I think that's a very human quality. Like when someone asks you a question and your instinct is not to admit mm -hmm. that you don't know. And so you come up with this. Yeah, I mean, we've all been in school. We've all done that at some point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, Microsoft says that it is trying to work on this. But when they retested, when they reprompted Bing just recently, they still found the same issues. So obviously with... 2024 being a major election year, and I would say quite pivotal in terms of democracy and how this new technology will be used in the electoral process. We have the US, we have the EU, Taiwan, Russia, but yeah, we might be able to disregard <laughs> what yeah, kind of that, impact that, 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 that will have really on the matter. results anyway. But it is something that I think we should all, to bring a little bit of seriousness mm -hmm. to it, I think it's something that we should all be aware of. Microsoft says that people should exercise best judgment when engaging with Copilot, as it is now known. But I am interested to see just how far they will take the responsibility for this. Yeah, that's a really big question. And I mean, it can actually be much more serious even than uh, than it appears on the first uh, the first glance, because in my own uh, bubble, for example, I see more and more people literally switching to chat GPT, for example, from normal Googling, right? So like instead of Googling something, you just go into the chat GPT interface and you ask uh, it, and then it supposedly performs an internet search when it has to, and then it comes up with the answer. But then yeah, if if it ends up being the case uh, that it just has hallucinated something very important, as important as, for example, whatever answers you need to get about uh, different political candidates that you want to vote for, that uh, that, that can uh, that can have huge consequences, both for the actual politics, but also for the trust, as you said before, uh, for these uh, for these systems. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that if you, uh, what was that story about a, a lawyer in the U.S. who used ChatGPT <laughs> to put together his his legal brief. And I think we might think that it's a, a natural thing to to source check, even when we're asking a, a chatbot or a large language model about things. But we will be using them to gain efficiency. Yeah, and exactly. so if we're using a tool to gain efficiency, we're not going to sit and double check everything. And, you know, yes, exercise best judgment, but that we can do when we already have some form of information about something and some base, basic knowledge. And I think people will, as you say, be using it more and more instead of search. And then, yeah, even when you then see the sources and they are reputable sources in terms of media outlets, and you rely on them to provide you with the correct information, but they're being misquoted by the AI, yeah, then that's yeah. that's a real issue. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like using using the best judgment, 
what, what does it even mean? Like in many cases, the reason you're asking certain questions from uh, from the generative AI uh, engine is because you either don't have time or you, for example, don't speak the language very well or you just don't know where to look or you just like the basic knowledge, as you said, uh, of something. This is why you're asking. So you cannot actually double check. This is uh, when you come to that sort of situation, then you either trust the AI or you do not. And if you do not, then what uh, what can you do? Yeah, and I think it's important, again, to know that it was one-third out of the prompts. That, that's way, way, way too much. And I think that segues very nicely into a story that we didn't cover, but is also incredibly important for the, for the media landscape and for sources uh, being quoted by, well, ChatGPT in this case, because it relates to OpenAI. And in a first, I would say it's a global first mm -hmm. for this kind of deal. So Axel Springer, which is a huge German publishing group, which owns Business Insider and Bild, which mm -hmm. is a, a German entity and, and Politico as well. They just reached a deal with OpenAI for OpenAI to be able to use historical content, but also near real-time content from the Axel Springer outlets in training its models and also using them as reference with linking back to the near real-time data. This is, this is potentially huge, isn't it? It is potentially huge. I think it, it sets up a new a business model for media mm -hmm. overall. And the question is, will everyone get on board quickly enough? And then some will be left behind. Will we see also perhaps less independent media than in the future who will not have the kind of the kind of volume of content that OpenAI will be willing to pay money for. Yeah, it would for. be interesting, right? Yeah. Be interesting for these platforms. Exactly. And then will we see only the larger platforms entering deals like this and then the smaller platforms will sort of fade away because the funding won't be there or um, the traditional sources of revenue won't be there and this will be the way to make money. So it's also, and I mean, <laughs> linking back to democracy, it's, you know, access to free information, free and independent information is also something that um, is incredibly important. So so the CEO of Axel Springer, he said that this will promote quality journalism and that it will actually bring quality societal relevance through this kind of arrangement. I don't know. I think that might be pushing it a little bit. I think first and foremost is going to bring some money on the bank accounts of Axel Springer. Absolutely. I think they, so the full amount has not been disclosed, um, but it's in the tens of millions per year. Right. And then there's a one-off sum for the historical content as well. Right. This is this is really interesting. I'm also very interested to learn about uh, that uh, flat fee a bit more. I'm really interested how much this kind of huge archive of uh, of data uh, could uh, could cost. How much uh, OpenAI would be willing to pay for it? Yes. Like what what is it worth? And I think there is we could actually get an answer to what is data yeah. worth in yeah. the AI training era. Um, and obviously this is something, why this is such a landmark deal is because media outlets have been very reluctant or they've been fighting pretty strongly against their content being used by those who yeah. are training large language models. And so I, I would say that it's a shift 
yes, for the media business model, but it's also a shift perhaps in, in attitude to, okay, we can't fight this. So how are we going to make sure we're not losing out? I mean, but we also have to understand that this is not going to pay all the bills for Axel Springer or any other company. So it is a lot of money. It's an eight-figure sum, and it's a non-exclusive deal, which means that they can sell it once again to another bidder. But then still, we're talking about uh, the publishing house uh, that has uh, yearly revenues of about 3 billion euros. So tens of millions of uh, euros is a great add-on to that, but it's not going to uh, replace uh, the revenues that they're getting from elsewhere. No, so again, I think the it comes down to, okay, how can we make sure that we're at least getting something out of this? No. Like, we won't have to enter into legal battles in terms of copyright, and we can be ahead a little bit of the competition in making sure that we're not losing. That is true, but at the same, but at the same time, I really uh, want to make sure that it doesn't become the case that the entire media consumption would be happening through, for example, ChatGPT. Well, you said so yourself just a little while ago that it is, people are more and more turning to to chatbots that are, and if you and search chatbots like Bing, like we've been talking about, or you have others as well, like Google Bard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and they obviously also will have access to this kind of. Yeah, I mean, that's also true. But uh, you see, like, one thing is when you want to Google something and then you choose to ask ChatGPT instead. That's uh, that's one way you can see media. But then uh, there is also media consumption that's a bit more conscious, you know, like going to a website of the publication that you like or checking your RSS feed, which I do, but I'm an old person. Still, like, uh, is, is, the, is that going to be replaced by ChatGPT? That's, uh, that's another question. And if that's the case, then I'm a little bit worried about our future, Linnea. Uh, well, and then we also have the question of... Uh, if you're because you, you're talking about ChatGPT specifically now, and ChatGPT is related to Microsoft because mm -hmm. Microsoft owns the IP from OpenAI, excluding anything related to AGI. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, if ChatGPT becomes the same type of expression for interacting with a chatbot like Google has become for search. Like we don't say go yeah. search the which, internet, which I, I you say it go Google. One, actually. It is. And then the question is, are you going to threaten Google's core business model with this new way of looking up information? Well, business model. Okay, that's a very long discussion to yeah. have, of course, <laughs> but, uh, but also on the topic of business model, there still has to be found a proper business model for this type of thing, the ChatGPT chatbot, because it's not it's not profitable, I think, even with the 20 bucks a month uh, subscription. So this is another <laughs> amazing segue into the business model of OpenAI, because this is what I learned this week. This okay, is my little, let's move um, on to this then. Yes, staying again within the realm of LLM and, uh, and generative I AI. I promise I will talk about something else. <laughs> Um, so I learned that while OpenAI is a non-for-profit organization, it has a for-profit, but a capped for-profit subsidiary, mm -hmm. which is OpenAI Global. So OpenAI exists in order to develop AGI. So artificial general intelligence, mm -hmm. which rivals human intelligence, to make it into a very short explanation. And its mission is to create safe AGI that benefits all of humanity. But of course, 
donations alone will not cut it. And so they had to bring on investors such as Microsoft and they set up the subsidiary that will allow for for the earliest investors such as Microsoft and Five Capital, it will allow for a hundred times return on investment. That's a hell of a cap. Yeah. <laughs> but the the reasoning is that the then the benefit or the potential of actually developing AGI will be so huge that it will go beyond this kind of of profit and return. So Microsoft actually has no equity mm-hmm. at all in OpenAI. It has a minority economic interest. Uh, if what that a, is what you call $13 billion. <laughs> minority economic interest. So what is it in plain mm-hmm. English again? So it basically means that Microsoft does not own any part mm-hmm. of OpenAI, but it is invested. And this is something that the wording for this was actually changed, and this is where the European angle <laughs> comes in. So they actually changed the wording of this on their website mm-hmm. after the UK launched a probe into the ownership structure between Microsoft and OpenAI, so the competition huh. watchdog. But I've, what I actually find most interesting is that OpenAI says that its for-profit arm exists only to advance the non-profit arm's AGI mission, mm-hmm. and that takes precedence over any obligation to make a profit. And okay. this is the stated very, very clearly on their website, in a purple square on their website, clearly warning investors that it's a high-risk um, investment situation, and specifically that. That okay. their mission takes precedence over any obligation to make a profit as a company. All right. Thanks, uh, thanks so much. Uh, we'll move to my own uh, thing, uh, which has nothing to do with AI. Absolutely Yay. nothing. <laughs> so uh, uh, in what I have learned uh, over this past week, I'm going to cheat a tiny little bit because I actually first learned this a couple of months ago, but then I had totally forgotten. And then I remembered about it again when I listened to uh, one of our interviews uh, from last week. We released a conversation with uh, Valentina Milanova from Day, and uh, she knows a lot about period products and particularly about tampons. So one of the things that she told me, and that was uh, back at uh, the Tech Barbecue Conference uh, uh, in September in Copenhagen, she told me that the majority of the world's tampons turn out to be produced on the machines manufactured by one Swiss company that's called Rugly. And over the years, the company has apparently created a near monopoly situation on the market. And that actually really reminded me of the lithography machines of the chips industry, where the Dutch giant ASML controls a share of 80%. So there is no particular conclusion here, but definitely an interesting fact and definitely a market that's uh, ripe uh, for disruption when it's sort of near monopolized by uh, one uh, machine manufacturer. And by the way, if you didn't hear the interview with Valentina Milanova, check it out on our podcast feed. It's in the previous bonus episode that is focused on uh, Femtech. Now, moving to today's featured interview, it is uh, with uh, Erica Chang, whom you might remember as the whistleblower in the Theranos case in the US. But these days, she is leveraging this unique experience that she's got to improve the situation with ethics in entrepreneurship. I first met Erica last year in uh, Copenhagen at a conference, and then I had wanted to record a proper podcast interview with her ever since. So fortunately, she came to Helsinki for the Slush conference a few weeks ago, and we had a bit of time to sit down and uh, catch up. So. Here it is. Enjoy. 
<laughs> so, Erica, thank you so much for taking the time. Welcome to TNW Podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, as we start, uh, for uh, those not as familiar maybe with uh, what it is that you're doing, can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background? So my name is Erica Chung. I'm currently the Executive Director of Ethics and Entrepreneurship, which is a nonprofit where we are on a mission to embed ethical questioning culture and systems in startups and uh, startup ecosystems. And so my background is effectively, I started my career as a scientist. I was immunochemist at the company called Theranos. And effectively, I ended up being one of the key whistleblowers in that company. And that kind of informed a lot of my interactions working with startups and working in startups of being embroiled in this major scandal that happened in the Silicon Valley. Uh, I also launched a tech accelerator as part of the founding team for a tech accelerator in mm -hmm. Hong Kong, where we did early stage tech investments across Asia. And I think Initially, I thought Theranos was going to be this one-off scandal that was sort of isolated in this one place. And then I worked for a tech accelerator and saw the kindling of what could be potential future scandals. And uh, that kind of informed me on we need a better model of really paying attention to how ethics is incorporated into the way that people build startups and think about their entrepreneurial journey. Right. So I noticed uh, uh, the other day on your LinkedIn profile, you don't actually list Theranos in the list of your um, employers. Yeah. Is it is it uh, like is it supposed to mean something? So this is actually a relic of working at Theranos. So it was part of our uh, contract. We were not allowed to list on our LinkedIn that we worked for Theranos. It was part of oh, wow. the secrecy agreement. So we had to put that we worked for a private biotech company. <laughs> and if we put that we worked at Theranos in our job description, that competitors could have potentially figured out what we were working on mm -hmm. and that we would get in trouble. So it's really vestigial of that reality of being in that company and the fact that they created all these crazy rules for us to not talk about what we were doing inside the company. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And now and now you're, of course, arguing for more uh, transparency uh, yes. within the industry, within the <laughs> ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you can see, <laughs> I, I think it, it's a pretty powerful statement of like seeing, the, yeah, that's, uh, those are some of the tactics that they might use to kind of hide from people what's actually yeah. going on. Yeah, absolutely. Was one interesting thing that I, I just uh, heard uh, during uh, your uh, fireside chat on stage here at Slush, uh, you were saying that there are uh, multiple uh, infinite recipes for success, but uh, only one uh, like, or, or very few recipes for failure. Uh, can you expand a little bit on that? So how, what do you see as similarities uh, with all these uh, uh, stories about like unethical behaviors of all kinds that have been uh, happening over the years? Yeah, this was really shocking to me, right? Because I had expected, and it was really eye-opening to me, the fact that it does seem that there is consistent markers for the way in which businesses fail. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that I talked about on stage were coming from this book and this framework by Marianne Jennings called The Seven Signs of Ethical Collapse. And effectively what Marianne Jennings had done, which was really smart back in 2001, she had dissected a lot of these different fraud scandals that had happened before and tried to synthesize down what seemed to be some of the organizational factors that led to these big business collapses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so some of the things that they talked about were pressure to maintain numbers, having a circumstance in which you are met to meet certain metrics with unrealistic timing expectations, a uh, culture of fear and silence, the conflicts of interest, a cult of personality leader with a young staff 
and youngin kind of workers, as she puts it. This notion of art of innovation like no other. The mm-hmm. fact that we are so innovative, and you heard this with WorldCom or Enron or all these different scandals, uh, that the rules and the laws they just don't apply to us. Uh, conflicts of interest and a weak board, and also uh, f- people who are really philanthropic can actually be an indicator of potential issues going on in the business if the business isn't doing well, because it's almost a way that people can leverage moral licensing to say, mm-hmm. look how good I am. Why Why would you disagree with what I'm doing? And that can kind of overshadow all the actual harsh realities of what's going on behind closed doors. And I think the most recent example that highlights this is FTX, of course, yeah. and, and Sam Bankman-Fried being very philanthropically involved. But interestingly, I know. So you uh, just listed uh, these uh, some of these uh, factors, and it feels like many, if not all of them, almost come with the territory, especially in uh, startup cultures like uh, uh, the stereotypical Silicon Valley culture, for yeah, example. Yeah, and I think that's what was so shocking to me and so scary was when I read this book. I was wow, this isn't just prevalent in the startup ecosystem. This is actually promoted. This is yeah. the way in which startups are advised to run. <laughs> and so I think that's why I was like, oh, we're we might have a problem here, right? Mm-hmm. If we fundamentally know that these are the circumstances that are really conducive for unethical activity to occur, what kind of world of hurt are we in for? And and so I think uh that that even utilizing this framework alone, there's so much work to be done on, okay, well, what are the alternatives? What are the ways in which we can kind of create antidotes to these types of circumstances where founders don't kind of continuously run into the same pitfalls? You know, how do we set more realistic expectations of the numbers that people are supposed to accomplish? Mm -hmm. And I think that's hard in the context of startups because of the venture model in certain ways, where the startups are not so much bound by their own timelines of their businesses, but they're also at the timelines of the VC firms that fund them and when those VCs need to raise their next fund. Um, so maybe there's new funding constructions that being created mm-hmm. where we can have more long-term investments. But but yeah, it was very concerning when I read this book and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> is this why we're seeing Theranos not be a one-off weird scandal that happened that one time, but maybe we're why we're seeing so many occurrences yeah. happen with such high frequency. But also I cannot help but think that... Uh, You can read as many things, as many books as you want on this, but <clears throat> there isn't much you can do from the outside. It has to, it has to come uh, from the from the founding team. It has to come uh, from the uh, from the investors. Yeah, and I I think that starts with awareness, right? Like, why have we used these models? Why move fast and break things? Why is that the mantra in the model? It was it just because we were in a funding landscape that there was a lot of money and everyone was trying to grab that money as quickly as possible? Was this actually for the benefit of the business? Have we done good retrospectives of have the most successful businesses in time leverage that kind of mentality, right? If we just focus on the idea of creating these yeah. these really, really strict numbers constraints. And so I think it does require the change of the founders. It does require a change for the investors. And I think the first start of creating that change is having that conversation of saying, hey, this is a bit concerning. Maybe the assumptions that we made about what makes a successful business landscape is not actually what it appeared to be. And maybe there's some room for improvement and, and frankly, innovation (laughs) of the way in which we do things. 
And I don't think that that's far-fetched. I think there are simple things that can be accomplished to start to chip away Mm -hmm. at making that transformational change. And I think you'll inevitably see it because the funding climate is not what it used to be because a lot of industries are starting to be regulated that weren't regulated before. So there's there's naturally a lot of these other external factors outside of the founders and the investors that are now probably forcing the founders and investors to be more reflective about their behavior and hmm. what do they need to do next. Yeah, no, that is true. But also, <clears throat> I'm thinking as well that uh, these uh, these uh, stories, these scandals have happened in so many different uh, industries. So starting from health tech, but then uh, fintech with uh, FTX and Wirecard and uh, more recently Binance and, I don't know, uh, mobility with uh, Nikola. How long uh, until it comes to AI and what is it going to mean for the for the AI industry in the current uh, in the current reality? Yeah, I, I, I think this is... I think just generally in terms of consumer concern around AI is much higher than we've seen with other types of technologies. So I think maybe that will have some influence in terms of trust being a very clear priority of majority of these AI companies that start. But I think this is a big call to action for a lot of people of saying, okay, we have seen the case that there have been so many of these different scandals, the implication of these big scandals when it comes to innovation, when it comes to new types of technology, how do we sort of learn from that repertoire of failures Mm -hmm. and really start to think about if we are going to develop this technology to the capacity that is, we can, we have to really mitigate these scandals from happening. So how, how do we put in those safeguards? What does that look like? How do maybe different stakeholders from academia, from uh, the business sector, from uh, the regulatory environment, the policy environment kind of come together and really think critically about, okay, how, how can we work together to ensure that we don't have these major existential threats that happen? And if they do happen, do we have good mitigation strategies to blockade them from from spreading too fast and too far outside of the places that they started? Is it something that you are working on as well? Yeah, we've been talking about, so I've been working in very specific fields, but I've been working with the DCI DCI network out at Harvard, and we've been working on creating better blueprints of trust Mm -hmm. for consumer health products in Mm -hmm. AI, because I think with consumers engaging, even with something like large language models, it presents all of these potential complications around, are they getting accurate information? Uh, Do they have literacy around how these models work? How Hmm. are we creating business models about what we charge them for versus what we don't charge them for? Um, So so that is something we're actively working on uh, with the DCI network at Mm -hmm. at Harvard. Right. Yeah, I mean, with AI, it's generally, in most cases, uh, generative AI models for a consumer are black boxes, aren't they? So how do you work around that? Because this is not going to change, not that I can see it changing, really. Yeah, I mean, it, there are different safeguards you can put. Like, who's responsible when something mm-hmm. goes wrong? How, uh, what are the vetting measures for the production? Just like you go to the app store and you know who's developed it, and that gives some accountability there. And then they can put other specs of was the possibility of uh, the data sets that they use. Are there certain methodologies or standards that you could say, did this mm-hmm. debias? Did it not debias? So there, there are certain things that you can do to ensure that 
it doesn't get too out of hand. It's out of the box. AI is out of the box. There's no denial about that. It's here to stay. It's going to be leveraged in a lot of different ways. Like with any new innovation, whether it was cars, whether it was airplanes, it's always about, we have this innovation. How do we increase and advance safety? And I think that is the new phase that we really need to pay attention to and really kind of need all hands on deck to say, this has huge implications in a lot of different facets and a lot of different realms. How do we all band together to say that we're all going to come to at least some sort of probably series of collective agreements around Mm -hmm. how do we advance safety in this space? And, And I've been mostly focused on the consumer healthcare space, but there are lots of other areas and arenas that I think it's important. Basically anything that is regulated usually and has some interface with with public interest. And of course, I understand that your uh, your work in uh, a big part is in the U.S., but uh, at the same time, to come closer to our European focus and uh, to this event, for example, that we are at right now, do you see what's happening in Europe in this direction? What uh, where do you see Europe's role? Is it is it going better? Is it going worse? Is it going the same? What's I mean, the difference? I think it's an active conversation in Europe. I mean, in terms of the regulatory landscape and the forefronts of. You know, one of the big concerns with AI is around privacy, and Mm -hmm. Europe has really started to, was at the forefront of taking that conversation seriously and really trying to implement active measures in order to give stronger guidance to companies on on how do you effectively safeguard privacy, how do you deal with issues of consent and and data management and data processing and how do you broker that. So I I think there is a lot of advanced conversations happening in Europe that is likely going to set the tone Mm -hmm. in many ways for the rest of the world because it is such a big market and because there are so many regulations coming out of here that inevitably companies probably in other markets are more likely to adhere to the standards in Europe because it just is too complicated to develop too many different pipelines of products. So I I, I think there should be a lot of interest of Mm -hmm. what's going on here. I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, for for people to get involved and not only setting the tone of, of how tech is developed in Europe and what are the standards for things like privacy here, but that could ultimately lead to radical change in, in other parts of the world because they want Europe Europeans to be customers of, of their products as well. Yeah, but then on the on the other hand, you keep hearing uh, voices from the industry saying that this regulation is slowing everyone down, and uh, it uh, means that Europe will never become a uh, major player uh, in this ecosystem in this industry, and we are behind China and we are behind the U.S. and so on and so forth. Yeah, and and, and maybe that's the case, but you know, uh, we had a lot of companies that I, I think in this space because there's so much distrust that's happening. So much so that the more people interact with AI, the more distrustful that they become of it, that moving slower might not be the worst option. Mm-hmm. And and hopefully we don't have the case that the people who are moving super fast end up having these different implosions. But it it, it some sometimes the things that we perceive as being disadvantages are not always those disadvantages. And I, I think it's always figuring out how do you understand the landscape that you're in and innovate on top of that to sort of uh, create the gold standard. And people really want trusted products. They want to make sure that they're taken care of. They're not going to be taken advantage, that they're not propagating a surveillance state that's going to be out of their hand. So I think those are some considerations and really good value propositions that I'd hope to see the next generation of entrepreneurs really say, like, you know, I want to be, I want to build that kind of company. Mm -hmm. 
No, absolutely. And uh, another thing I wanted to mention as well in this conversation is something that we discussed uh, more than a year ago when we first met. <laughs> uh, we discussed uh, the question of uh, uh, whistleblowers and their well-being in general and the, the outcomes for whistleblowers who are an integral element uh, for this entire ethics and, and entrepreneurship movement. Yeah. So is, is it something that you're still thinking about uh, working on uh, what's, uh, what's going on in that direction? I do a lot of advocacy for whistleblowers. One of the big organizations I work with is the Signals Network, and we develop mm-hmm the tech worker handbook. So for people who happen to find themselves in a circumstance that they might need to blow the whistle, what does the legal and the regulatory landscape look like? What does the personal cost look like? What do the legal costs look like? <laughs> and it kind of lays that out for people to help them make the decisions in addition to having a support network of people who can help you with everything from getting access to a lawyer to uh, needing to find a new job to having safe housing. So it's a great organization. I'm also part part of uh, a lot of whistleblower events. Mm -hmm. So I am frequently seen at National Whistleblower Day over in D.C., uh, where they have a summit where a bunch of whistleblowers get together and talk about different policies on that front. How big a community is it? It is a small and very eccentric uh, community. It's it's both (laughs) big and small. So whistleblowing is quite common, right? It's it's quite common, but also very unique. Uh, so so it's it's an interesting group of people. I'm I'm very I don't know if proud is the right word, but it's a it's a collective of people that I'm was probably the biggest silver lining hmm. to be a part of. So people are coming from government, they're coming from industry, they're coming from nonprofits, and they all have these unique stories, these unique backgrounds. And it's just so fascinating to see these little Davids against these massive Goliath organizations uh, that ultimately are trying to do the right thing. I will say that the whistleblower is incredibly hard. It may be more celebrated now, and it's, at least in the public eye, something that's seen as a good channel for accountability and ensuring that organizations are held accountable for the mm-hmm. things that they have done. But uh, the actual personal journey is is quite, quite hard. So it's nice to have these different collective organizations because the, the peer-to-peer support I know in my own journey was immensely helpful. And it seems with the other people I talked to there, uh, very helpful as well. Yeah, and I just uh, I just realized that we know about very few stories of uh, whistleblowers that are more media uh, have been more celebrated in media have been more have been covered more, but there must be so much more than that. There, there's so many more, and many of them you don't hear of, and and they don't want to be heard of, right? Mm-hmm. Because majority of them lose their careers, they end up being pushed out of the industries that they're a part of. It's actually often something that you want to keep quiet. It's mm-hmm. not something that you want to really pronounce. I think for the ones who end up in the media, like in my case, I was an anonymous whistleblower for the largest amount of time, but then I ended up getting deposed and my name went in the public record and it was a bit of a complicated saga. So I didn't really have a choice in the matter. But there are many more stories that go unheard. And there are many more stories that frankly do not have justice served, I'd Mm -hmm. say. So It's not always a happy end. Uh, no, no. Actually, many of them are not happy, happy endings. And whistleblowing can be something that you report and it's handled internally. So there are lots mm-hmm. of those champion cases, too, where it didn't have to blow up to be something right. disastrous. But, but yeah, there are lots of storylines. It's incredibly, I wouldn't say common, but it, it does happen quite frequently. Right, yeah. right. 
And I also noticed that uh, you are now working on a uh, fraud examiner degree, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. What is it? So there's the American Certified Fraud Examiners Association, and it's a certification. It is a combination of law, accounting, fraud prevention strategies and investigations. And I think a lot of fraud examiners are tending to deal with public companies. Mm -hmm. There's a very strict set of tools that people develop in order to examine what's happening in the public market and some of the private markets. But I think in the venture space, it's this whole new fundraising model in addition to a new type of organizational model that I think in terms of developing interesting fraud prevention strategies in addition to investigative tools, that there's a lot of opportunity there and that people aren't really in the space of both fraud and startups, right? Mm -hmm. That's fairly new. That's yeah, fairly new. Yeah, no, that's true. So I wanted to get more insight on what that looks like. And, and so that, that was a big initiator. I realized that whether I like it or not, being the Theranos whistleblower is going to be a part of my identity. And I'm going to be talking about fraud probably for a large majority of my life. And so to have more insight and color of, of what does that whole landscape look like was important to me to just be educated on that and to kind of upskill in that capacity and to maybe merge these disparate worlds mm -hmm. that I happen to be a part of to sort of contribute a little more value to everyone to, to sort of highlight what they should prepare themselves for. And, and ultimately, I think a big mission of mine is to prevent these big cases from happening right. because they, they really, uh, they're really take a huge toll on everyone. So what what are you working on now? What can we expect to <laughs> next year when we meet again? As yeah, so I'm, I'm working on a number of things. So we have a number of initiatives under the nonprofit, but the one I'm most excited about is a Responsible Innovation Services Coalition. Mm -hmm. Its acronym is RISC. And effectively, we are developing a way in which we are making it easier and more accessible for people to understand if they want to engage in responsible innovation. What does that specifically mean for their organization and for their profession? So we've developed an assessment tool to help people figure out what does responsible innovation mean for their organization? Mm -hmm. What does it mean for their leadership, their governance structure, their organizational design, their product pipelines? And then we liaison them with either an expert network of consultants that they can mm -hmm. hire or trainings that they can upskill people who are in their organization in order to get more versed on some of these topics. So we'll be launching that next year. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm really excited. We're partnering up with a number of different consultancy agencies, both in uh, the UK and across the US. And so uh, look out for that. That's Great. That's out. quite interesting. Yeah. Erica, thank you so much for this conversation and good luck with everything you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Big thanks to Erica again for finding the time to come on the show. And now, before we go, it is time to announce the results of the conference ticket giveaway that we started last week. Remember, we asked uh, all the listeners to pitch in and uh, tell us how we did in the first episode. Thanks a lot for all the feedback that we've uh, got. And now, Linia, will you do the honors? Of course, we'll be very happy to. So our winner is Michael Stedenberg. We'll send an email with instructions on how to claim your ticket shortly. Michael, thank you so much for your feedback. The lucky winner, you will get a confirmation uh, in a bit, uh, maybe even before this podcast goes on air. Congratulations once again, and uh, do come to say hi to us when you come to the conference next year. In the meantime, do keep your eyes and ears open for more upcoming giveaways in the new year. And this is all we have time for in this episode of the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and Linia, thank you so much once again for joining today.
Thank you very much for having me. I, I'll uh, try to come up with some non-AI related stories for next time <laughs> I want. Right. So our next uh, episode will come out in the new year. So you have some time and this is going to be your new year's resolution to avoid talking about AI in at least two episodes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <gasps> to hold you up to that. <laughs> Now, if you liked this podcast, please do help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on social media. Just search for The Next Web and you will find us everywhere. Music and sound engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions. You can use my own email. It's andri at thenextweb.com. Have a great week. Have a great Christmas. Talk to you in the new year. Bye-bye.